Welcome to the University of Birmingham's Rise of the Research series. Each episode will feature two experts discussing areas of their research that relate to subjects explored in Disney's Star Wars movie franchise. This episode will feature experts from the schools of psychology and sport, exercise and rehabilitation sciences. And they will be exploring how mental skills training can help improve peak performance as depicted in Star Wars. I'm Matthew Broom. I'm Professor of um, Psychiatry and Youth Mental Health and Director of the Institute for Mental Health at the University of Birmingham. I'll introduce my colleague, Dr Jen Cumming. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Jen Cumming. I'm from the School of Sport, Exercise and Rehabilitation Sciences. I'm a, a reader in sport and exercise psychology as well as a, a chartered psychologist. One of the things we're going to talk a bit about today is some of the parallels between the Star Wars movies and our own research in mental health, and in particular, Jen's own research area of mental health skills in, in, in athletes. One of the things that's clear from the films is that um, the Jedi undergo periods of intense training. So we see in the films often Yoda and Luke interacting and uh, Luke being challenged to develop certain skills and operate at a very peak level of, of efficiency in terms of high stress. And also things about managing emotions and controlling those feelings. So you want to talk about some of those issues today with Jen and how these relate to her own work with athletes, but also in wider mental health settings. So with the new Star Wars film coming up in a, in a few weeks' time, it's, uh, it's quite interesting to draw some parallels between what we see in those films and then actually what happens in the real world in terms of athletes training for, for high-level competition. And uh, if we start with that, that kind of point of the Jedi having to train for, for many years to reach their kind of peak performance, um, the same thing happens with athletes. So, so we know that uh, for an athlete to kind of reach the highest levels of performance, it takes at least 10 years of dedicated practice. And in fact, it's not just any kind of practice. It's what we call deliberate practice. And that's the kind of practice that's the most relevant to improving our performance. And it's the one type of practice that takes the most amount of concentration and often with feedback and guided by a teacher. So the analogy with Yoda and Luke is actually really bang on in terms of what we know separates the best athletes from those who are developing is by the type of practice that they actually do. Okay, so in terms of, so the analogy with Yoda, so I guess one of the things that's, interesting in those films so again the influences on lucas was some of the kind of martial arts training as yoda seemed to be the kind of you know um shifu the kind of wise eccentric mm -hmm. elderly man who's training his apprentice so how does i mean i imagine coaching is more direct and transparent and clear-cut in this is that not the case are they there sometimes these um tangential tasks that uh that students have to undertake? Yeah, but well, you often see that the best athletes have worked with coaches in a very dedicated way for a long period of time. And okay. depending on like what level they're at, the coaching will be different. So the type of coaching you get at the highest levels will probably kind of look and feel different from when you sort of first enter your sport at a more sort of introductory recreational level where it's often led by, for example, maybe parents who are turning into coaches. So mm -hmm. often much more supporter, trying to introduce you to the basic skills to then what you see at maybe the higher levels where it's really refined and, and then often working maybe a lot more in partnership with the coach mm -hmm. so the coach really trying to get your input in terms of what is it that you want to improve so so perhaps like a little bit different from that kind of 
wise man Yoda type mm. analogy where he's the all-knowing in terms of what what's needed in order to succeed. But, you know, you certainly will see those kind of archetypes in, in coaches and sport as well. And I guess listening to my limited knowledge of things like Andy Murray and perhaps the British cycling team, where these very small changes in performance make a massive difference. And sometimes it's some of these psychological or emotional techniques that can be crucial, perhaps, yeah. rather more physical as narrowly conceived techniques. So when you when you talk about those kind of really high level performers, they often refer to what's called the one percents. Okay. And so it's all the extra one percents that really count and mount up in order to kind of really be able to maximize your performance and, and even outperform the best in the world. And so psychology forms one of those sort of really important pillars. So you've got the mental side, you've got then the physical, technical, tactical, depending on the sport, you might even have then the artistic side to throw in there as well. And uh, one of the kind of um, analogies we often use is that if you think about each pillar, well, you want all four of them to be really strong, but also really level, because you wouldn't want to have Mm -hmm. weakness in one side unless you can offset it with another. And uh, athletes, when they when they make it to the highest levels, they'll often say that physically, technically, they had what it took maybe even a couple of years before they reached that point, because the thing that was often missing was that that mental side, that psychological side. And that's because it's not always really embedded into the sport in terms of its training. But when when the athletes do it from a very early age, they treat it just like any kind of physical skill. Mm-hmm. A really kind of good example of that is is mental imagery. Okay. So you might have heard of it in terms of being a form of visualization. Yes. But when it comes to imagery, you're actually trying to use all your senses to kind of re- kind of create or recreate some kind of scenario. So for an athlete, often they start really young dreaming of that world championships and being the best in the world. And they'll have that kind of clear image. But they can use imagery in a very day-to-day way to kind of practice their skills, build their motivation, handle pressure. And we know that when athletes start developing their imagery skills early on they're much more likely to make it to the top levels at later on so it's just like any kind of physical skill interesting hmm. and i guess i want to ask you about how that relates to our research around mental health but i guess one thing we talked about briefly before we began recording was around athletes coping with failure because so i guess when you're working at this, this high level the odds are you're not going to be the, the number one in the world but you've dedicated so much of your life as you said through training towards it so and you talked recently about the New Zealand team. So tell me a bit about how coaches and athletes work around yeah, failing. Yeah, well, failing is a big part of sport because with every success, you're going to have times when you either failed, made errors or struggled with setbacks like injury, for example. And so a big part of sport is learning how to, to cope with that and not all athletes are able to do that maybe as effectively as others. So we know there's lots of really effective ways of, of coping. And just like you learn to cope with how you make your way through school and, and relationships and et cetera, the same can be said about the sport field. And so athletes start to develop like a really broad base of coping skills so they can draw on them in a very dynamic way so they can apply the right kind of coping to the right kind of situation. Mm. So for example, when they're injured, Uh, social support becomes really important because they might not be able to practice and compete with the people they normally see on a day-to-day basis and through the injury start to feel very isolated and so drawing on that kind of social support outside of sport within sport can be a very important coping strategy but that's something that often has to be learned through trial and error Uh, coaches who've got a psychology background will 
think about it in a very holistic way with their mm-hmm. athletes. But of course, they can also bring in a sports psychologist to, mm-hmm. to work with athletes as well to help teach these skills and practice them, implement them under pressure. Yeah. And how does that, the, the, the reality of not succeeding, m- mesh with this idea of imaging success and the imagery of success? Is there a tension if you use imagery for thinking forward that when rejection happens, it's, it's harder? Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Because um, visualizing success as a potent motivator or, or tool. It's a huge motivator for athletes. So when that success doesn't happen, then how to respond to it. And so athletes learn a set of skills around how to reappraise mm-hmm. a situation. So learn to draw lessons from it so that you're not making the same mistakes again, but actually then really focusing on the positive from that yeah. situation and then and then taking it forward. So it's, you know, a lot of the really good basic skills that you would have when you have that kind of thing of turning, you know, lemons into to lemonade. Yeah. Athletes will take that one step further so that when they're they're looking at situations, let's say like an injury is another really good example. If you have an injury that ends your season, there's a lot of negatives with that. And we know that the athletes who recover best will start to see the positives. So so one great example of that is they can start to work on areas of their sport they don't normally get to because they're training at that point in the season. Mm. So it's an opportunity to kind of work out some of the weaknesses. Mm. Interesting. So you've spoken a bit about the psychological techniques athletes and their coaches use to improve their performance and, as we said, cope with when the performance doesn't go as well as they would like. I mean, a lot of how we work together is around how you generalise that knowledge into other areas of, of psychology, I guess, and and uh, and life. So whether you could tell us a little bit about how you work in people with, with mental health problems or with issues with um, housing, for example. Sure, yeah. I mean, a big part of the work that we've been doing over the last five, six years is taking the same kind of mental skills that athletes develop year on, year out, and then bringing them into maybe other parts of society where maybe they haven't had that same kind of opportunity and so one case is working with young people who are who are homeless mm-hmm. and uh, that's sort of based in a housing service here in Birmingham called St. Basil's and years ago um, one of their staff members had come along to a parent session that we had with a, a local uh, Premier League football academy and we were doing some sports psychology with their players and they, they heard about this work we were doing with the players and said you know I, I think our young people would really benefit from it mm-hmm. and young people who are homeless there's a lot of you know, stigma associated with that they often have a lot of complex uh, problems, uh, mental health, physical, mm-hmm. and that's often then wrapped up with housing issues. Um, you know, having no housing or temporary housing, or not being able to work, um, not being in education. So they they have a lot of barriers, and. In the past, a lot of interventions for that group has been very much around these problems, and what has been the main finding is that they're very hard to to engage with that because. Mm-hmm. When you're just focusing on what, what's wrong, then it's not very motivating to kind of engage with. And so actually bringing in a, a sports psychology program mm-hmm. for this group might seem really off the wall, but actually the same mental skills that an athlete will use under pressure are the exact same skills that someone might then use when they're going to interview for okay. that job or uh, if they're preparing for a test or exam in school. It's, it's the same skills that they want to be using. And so we've been working with them to create a program that uh, is delivered to their young people, working with their staff to deliver that. And the benefits are very similar to what we see in sports. So um, when you engage in mental skills, you develop the 
ability to regulate your emotions, mm. your thoughts. Um, and as a result, that impacts you positively in terms of your self-esteem, your well-being. And so your mental health starts to improve. Okay, interesting. Mm. I was going to ask you one of the things that strikes me with the Star Wars films. They have sort of two ways of viewing emotions that I don't think are terribly helpful. So one is the Jedi way, which perhaps you caricature as repress and ignore. Maybe this is this kind of idea of kind of, you know, Buddhist withdrawal from the world. The other is the kind of Sith and give into it and with emotions come power and rage. A very negative, powerful way. Whereas obviously, I guess what what chime with you with what you're saying there was this kind of real, real way of how emotions are important parts of our life and how we manage them. So that sounds interesting, I guess, with young people as well who have these challenges. Maybe you could say a little bit more about what kind of psychological techniques athletes use and perhaps you know you mentioned as well your recent work with some of the schools how people who cope with anxiety and other spheres of life make make a benefit from this yeah so one one of the the really the basic things that we'll do is help young people start to be aware of their emotions Mm -hmm. and so just some basic techniques around that and actually one of our favorite things to do is play a game of uno Mm -hmm. so you know that that card game where each um there's different numbers but each one have a different color which is a primary color red green blue yellow and then attaching that to a sort of a main type of emotion and it's really quite a a fun way to engage young people in an emotional experience so that they're they're playing a game and when they want to change colors they have to name an emotion and talk about how they've experienced it and how they might manage it and it turns something that could be quite dull into actually something that could be quite exciting and uh, what what we found is that although you might expect by the time someone's 16, 17, 18, they have a good understanding of their emotions, that's actually not always the case. And there's actually a, a period of life where you're experiencing a lot of really intense emotions. Like if you think Anakin Skywalker in those those very mm-hmm. early movies when he's quite quite young before he gets turned to the dark side, that actually you see a lot of that. Like just learning how to contain your emotions to the Jedi way didn't didn't work for him. But actually, yeah. doesn't that make sense from a developmental perspective that? You, you would expect someone at that, that point to be experiencing really intense emotions and struggling to to cap that. And so how could he then? And so it makes maybe sense why he was drawn to the Sith side where he could actually explore those emotions in a in a different yeah. way. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Cause I, as I say, I kind of find the Jedi and the Sith answers not satisfactory. So they don't really give us a, a good account of emotional regulation, perhaps in the Star Wars films, as you turn to... I don't know, the Han Solo or the Princess Leia or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting what you're saying you're doing with, with young people. And you mentioned as well s- skills with school children mm-hmm. and how they might use some of these techniques to manage anxiety. Yeah. So one of the things that we really enjoy doing when we go into schools is start to talk to young people about how they can identify the strengths that they mm-hmm. have. And this is often like a very different type of conversation than what, what they're used to. And starting to look at what's right about them in terms of, you know, what are the things that you're doing already and then be able to build on on yeah. that. And so that kind of links really nicely with goal setting, because when you start to set your goals and you think about how you want to achieve them, if you think about already strengths that you have and how they can be used to help you achieve your goals, mm-hmm. your goals start to seem a lot more manageable. OK, yeah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. So you're going to break it down a bit and think about the asset based way of tackling them. Yeah, yeah. And I guess one of the other areas of, of psychological work that's increasingly popular and of influential is, is mindfulness. And again, that people in the old days, you say this is, this, is, this is Buddhist practice in a kind of evidence-based scientific way. Mm. And again, I mentioned the kind of influence between some of the kind of martial arts ideas, um, both with the kind of, um, also the Kurosawa tradition, but as well as the kind of 
uh, Chinese um, tradition with, on, on Lucas. How does mindfulness relate to your to your work and the kind of coaching uh, techniques you're employing in mental health? Yeah, so so mindfulness has made its way into into sport. There's growing recognition by by athletes and coaches um, about the the power of of mindfulness. So being able to stay present okay. in a moment can be very useful. And in fact, we we probably had been talking to athletes about this long before the concept of mindfulness really made its way into kind of western culture with the idea of being that you get into your performance bubble mm-hmm. in the here and now and that's sort of the ideal concentration state when they're when athletes are under pressure because often they will time travel in their mm-hmm. mind so in under pressure if you start to travel in time to somewhere in the past maybe thinking about the last time you performed and mistakes that you made that's going to throw you off in terms of concentration going to the future Maybe you've already mentally thought you've won the game and that might then lead you to performing in a way where you make mistakes and and not really paying attention. Mm -hmm. And so learning to stay in the here and now is a really important technique for athletes. And so mindfulness is another layer to that that brings in then the ability to not be judgmental on yourself. Mm -hmm. And so accepting where you are at that moment is also really important. So so mindfulness is has provided us, I think, with a language and a skill set and opening up all new types of exercises that we can do that really help athletes just as it does to anyone. Okay, so as you say, those same techniques can be useful for a young person looking at taking an A-level exam or a young person looking for a job interviews, as you talked about. Absolutely. These are, these are important mental skills. And these are mental skills not just for kind of late adolescents, early adults. Actually, yeah. they're for the entire lifespan. Because you think about even young children who are starting to learn how to self-regulate and starting to experience really quite intense emotions. It's a great opportunity to start to give names to them and build some skills in very mm. early on. Um, I think the youngest athletes I've ever worked with in a mental skills perspective are about six, seven okay. years wow. of age. And with that, we obviously change the way we approach things but uh, we make it you know a lot through games uh, you know drawing our goals that, that kind of idea making it really fun really interactive but even at that young age they're getting some of these concepts and then they have an opportunity to build on them build mm-hmm. on them so rather than developing lots of kind of mental bad habits they're able to put some good habits in place from a very early stage mm-hmm. okay so if you were to assess the Jedi coaching techniques, what, what would you think? Is there things they do there that you can see parallels with? Or do you think this is slightly different to what you'd think? And maybe maybe Luke and Anakin's outcome is not what Yoda's interested in, perhaps? Yeah, I think there is um, there's maybe some elements of it that we wouldn't consider best practice from a from a coaching perspective. So one of the, one of the things that we that we do know from a motivational side is that um, athletes will excel performance wise, well being wise when their basic psychological needs are mm-hmm. met. And so one of those basic needs is that need for autonomy, being self-determined. And the the Jedi way is very much um, this is the way it is and either you you buy in or or not. And so in that way, you you might argue that it's not always fulfilling someone's psychological needs. So I mean, that's an interesting way to look at the, the Jedi approaches. However, the, the side of it where it's really encouraging someone to, to kind of dedicate themselves to practice and improving, that that would be seen as kind of a best practice. Yeah. yeah. I think as you're talking about imagery, when Yoda says, is it do or do not? He's almost asking Luke to see the end. Exactly. And I guess his expression, will the end, sometimes people, you hear people saying. Yeah, yeah. So in the idea that you, you image what you want to have happen, not yes. what you 
you would not want. So um, a really kind of simple technique for athletes is to preview the skill in the way they want it to unfold under okay. pressure. But if you sort of image it wrong, well, then you're, you're essentially telling your, your brain that this is how the skill should be performed. Yeah. So, so Yoda's kind of tip there is is a is a good one. <laughs> That's really fascinating. So, do we? I mean, this is this shows, I guess, how we can have mental control of our own neuroscience in some ways by priming ourselves. But this kind of future yeah. scanning, we make our performance better. Yeah, so that's where um, some really interesting work has been done over the years, looking at the overlap in brain activation mm-hmm. between imagery and physical performance of skills, or even actually when you observe them. So when, you know, Yoda shows Luke how to lift the boat, uh, sorry, his boat, his ship, out of the swamp, um, Luke is learning how to make this happen for himself. And so what we do know, although it's not identical, there is quite a lot of brain activation that overlaps between when you image something and when you physically do it. Mm. So you actually are mentally priming your brain for executing that skill at a later point so the idea being that the more you image it the more practice you're getting and that's why there's some really kind of exciting work that you have people who have learned how to play the piano using imagery and they're shown the changes in the wiring the brain that happened through the imagery practice alone so yeah you're absolutely wow, right fascinating yeah. maybe we should leave it there a really interesting discussion <laughs> jen thank you so much you're welcome thank you for listening For more information on the University of Birmingham's research, please visit www.birmingham.ac.uk forward slash research.